Grab your Bible and open it up to Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table here. You can download a Bible app. Uh, for the last number of weeks, we were in a... Uh, in a topical series called Questioning God. Uh, and now we're jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew. And so before we get to the text, I just kind of want to remind us of where we've been, kind of set the table a little bit, do a little bit of uh, recap for us, uh, and just kind of uh, set the table by answering a couple of questions. The first question is this, why do we as a church uh, typically teach through books of the Bible? Why is that something that we think is uh, so important? Well, the reason is because we believe that this is the Word of God. So some of you might be new to church and you haven't heard heard this idea before, you've heard of the Bible, but you're not sure what it is. Well, the, the Christian doctrine uh, when it comes to the scriptures is that this is the word of God that has been breathed by God for us, that this is God's special revelation to us. It's the means by which God has communicated who he is, what he's like, and how we can know him. And ultimately, this book is telling one giant story of God's uh, plan for redemption for all of humanity. But ultimately, if I could summarize the Bible with one word, it would be this one. Which one do you think it is? Maybe you should be careful. Jesus. It's always the answer if you're in church. And the guy at the front says, what's the answer? Just you're never going to go wrong with Jesus, okay? The answer is Jesus. This book is all about Jesus. Hey, good job. Okay. This book's all about Jesus. Jesus. That's right. And so we, we read the Bible. We study the Bible. Uh, we encourage you to read the Bible. We want to, we want to understand what the Bible says because we want to understand who God is and God has revealed himself to us uh, through the person and work of Jesus. The apostle Paul actually says in Romans one, that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is being revealed. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's right. Good job. Good job. And so we study the Bible because we love Jesus, and we want to know Jesus, and we want to get to know Jesus. And many of you are here, and you're, you're asking questions like this. Like, what is God's will for my life? The answer is right here. So this morning, we're actually, I'm going to answer that question, what God's will for your life is. Next Sunday, I'm going to answer it again. And the week after that, we're going to answer it again. Week after week after week, we can tell you exactly what God's will is for your life because he's proclaimed it to us through his word. As one of my, my Bible college professors used to say, every time you crack the book, you come face to face with God. And so we think the most important thing we can do when we get together is sit under the teaching of the Bible. It's to study the Bible. It's to not just study it to understand it in terms of our knowledge of the Bible, but to actually know it in terms of like intimately know it in our hearts so that it would change and transform us and we'd actually start to live in obedience to it. The goal this morning isn't to just know what the Bible says, but the goal uh, this morning is to actually start to conform our lives to the teaching of the scriptures because the teaching of the scriptures ultimately teach us who Jesus is and what he's like. And the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to become more and more like Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to talk about things. Some of them are going to be good. You're going to love them. Some of them aren't. You're going to hate them. And you're going to have a choice to make. Am I going to submit to this or am I going to just do my own thing? Am I going to let the scriptures speak over my life and conform how I live them? Or am I just going to keep doing my own thing? And that's our choice every single week. Are we going to become more and more like Jesus? So that's why we like to study the Bible. Second is this. The Bible isn't just one book, though. It's a compilation of books. It's 66 books written by uh, a number of various human authors over, you know, thousands of years. And each one of these books has a particular or unique point of emphasis to it. And so what we like to do is just stop and take one book and, and do a deep dive into that book. So right now we're in a series of the Gospel of Matthew. We're in week 63 
of the series, and we're almost halfway done. I think I joked at the beginning of the series, some of you are going to get married and have babies. Well, some of you are going to get married and have two babies uh, before we get through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, But the Gospel of Matthew is a particular book written by a particular uh, human author. God spoke to this particular human author to to record uh, particular things to a particular group of people. So each book has a unique perspective or a unique emphasis uh, by which God is trying to communicate unique things to us. And so the the Gospel of Matthew is actually uh, found right at the beginning of your New Testament. And there's actually four books in the New Testament that are known as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and that word gospel, we, we, it's kind of full of uh, language and loaded with meaning for us. But, but ultimately, gospel is, is a, it, it's a genre of literature. It, it's a way in which uh, New Testament authors would write to communicate particular truths. You know, we would um, call it similar to biography. But gospel as a genre is different than biography in the way that we know it. So when we think of biography, we think of straight facts communicating data. But But gospel as a genre or gospel as biography is not quite that. It is certainly concerned with truth. It is certainly concerned with data and facts. But the the various gospel writers were writing to, again, I said this already, but to particular audiences to communicate particular types of truths. And so they would take the facts, they would take the stories, and they would compile them in in a particular way to make a larger, grander theological point. And that actually is a good segue into where we find ourselves because where we are this morning is right at the end of chapter 12. And this probably goes without saying, but the end of chapter 12 comes right after chapter 12 and comes right after chapter 11. And in chapter 11 and chapter 12, what we see is this situation whereby Jesus has been uh, having these interactions with a whole bunch of different types of people. He's been interacting with the crowds. He's been interacting with religious leaders. He's been uh, interacting with John's disciples. There's been all these different interactions that Jesus has been having, conversations that Jesus has been having with, with different people. And what's been consistent throughout all these interactions is the people's response. Every single time their response was to reject Jesus, to deny Jesus, to turn away from Jesus. Uh, some, some called him a demon. Uh, others just said they weren't interested. But what we see here at the end of Matthew chapter 12 is a bit of a shift. Matthew's going to show us a group of people who actually respond to Jesus. They respond in a way that they receive him. They, they come to him. And so if you have a Bible, go Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start uh, in verse 46. And I'll just read the whole text, and then I'll come back and uh, unpack this for us. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting text. I actually taught this on Friday night just because I was being lazy and doubled up my work. I taught this at the youth retreat on Friday night. And the kids were like, whoa. So Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. So Jesus is, to just help you understand the setting here, Jesus is teaching and preaching to the crowds and his family. His mother and his brothers stood outside. They wanted to have a conversation with Jesus. Verse 47, someone came to Jesus. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside. They're wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, to the man who came to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then look at what he says next. Verse 49, pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my brothers, or my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. It's interesting. It's interesting. Loaded. 
text is loaded with stuff. What I want to do to help us understand what Jesus is getting after this morning is answer, ask and answer, hopefully, five questions about this text. The first question is this. What is the family of God? Uh, obviously, as you look at this text, you see that Matthew, in recording Jesus' words, uses very specific language. He uses familial language, family language, to describe the nature of Jesus' relationship with his disciples. So, so you see this juxtaposition that occurs, whereby we have Jesus and his biological family, and then Jesus and his disciples, or Jesus and his spiritual family. And, and it seems like, in a sense, that Matthew is pitting the two against one another. Again, if you have your If you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, put your pretty little eyes down on verse 48. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? In other words, which group, which, which ones? And then he says, these disciples, these are actually my, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. And I want to, I'll unpack the nuance of this in, in just a second. But what I want you to see, what I want you to get this morning, because this will help us understand the text in a more broader sense, is that when Jesus talks about those who know him intimately, those who are actually his disciples, his followers. So again, remember Matthew chapter 11 and 12. There's a bunch of different people. There's crowds. They're interested. They're, they're kind of on the fringes. They're, they want to see what Jesus has to say. They've heard about him. They're intrigued by him. That's not who he's talking to here. There's the religious leaders who reject him. There's other people who reject him. That's not who he's talking to here. He's talking to his disciples, right? His, his closest followers, those who are actually obeying his teaching. They're leaning in. They're pressing in. They're interested in him. What does he call them? He calls them my family. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. They're, they're my family. Notice he doesn't use the word father because that is reserved for his heavenly father. Now, I want to just take a step back for a second and help us understand something. There is this thread that is woven all throughout the scriptures. We see it all the way from Genesis to uh, the end, the book of Revelation, whereby God's people are always a people. God's people are always a people. The New Testament specifically uh, hones that in or, or dials that in more, more directly to call the people of God a family. But right from the book of Genesis, right from the very beginning of creation, God's intent was always to create a community of people who would reflect what he looks like. The reason for this is because we see that God is triune in nature. In other words, God is relational. There's Father, Son, and Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God, God spoke and said, let us make man in our image. And then God creates Adam. Now remember this, okay? If you're new to the Bible, let me just help you understand this. The creation account, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God's creating things. He creates the cosmos and he declares it's good. He creates the land, the water, the sun, the animal, all these things. And he declares them as good. And then he creates Adam. Just Adam. And what does he say? Not yet. He says, not good for man to be alone. And all the ladies said amen, and all the men said double amen, right? Men on their own, not good. 
on the youth retreat this weekend. Single guy, went away for the weekend. Not one of the teens, one of the leaders. I went into the cabin. He's not here, so I can talk about him. I'm certain he doesn't listen to the podcast, and I won't use his name, although if you know who was there, you'll figure it out very quickly. He was sleeping in bed in his clothes. It was 11 o'clock. I, was the, I thought I was the first one to go to bed. He had already been in bed. He was in his bed alone, in his clothes, his coat, his jeans, sleeping on a cold camp mattress, no blanket, no pillow. And I wake, woke him up, and I said, hey, you. I won't use his name. almost did. Hey, you. No blanket, no pillow. Oh, I forgot. Change of clothes, oh, I, I couldn't, I was too busy. What? It is not good for man to be alone. Like, you need a mom, a wife, a girlfriend, a sister. Like, somebody needs to help this boy out. It is not good. And then he creates Eve. Sorry, back. I digress. Back to Genesis 1. And then, and then God creates Eve. They get married and declares it is now, it is very good. It is very good, right? Then we see all through the Old Testament, God redeeming and rescuing a people, the nation of Israel to himself. We see in the New Testament, this new covenant community being formed known as the church. And they are a people. They are a family. It's very important. If you have your Bibles, turn to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Spoiler alert, we're going to get there in about 17 years. Matthew chapter 28. Look at what Jesus says at the end of his uh, at the end of this gospel, after he's taken these disciples here in Matthew chapter 12, he's worked with them for three and a half years, which is about how long it's going to take us to finish this book. And then he sends them out. And look at what he says, Matthew chapter 28, picking up in verse 18. I think these will be on the screen behind me. He says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. And surely I'm with you always until the very end of the age. Jesus is going to take these people who have been his disciples, who have been following him. He's going to, he says, I'm going to send you out to go teach others what I've taught you. And here's how you're going to know you've taught them to, to do and obey all that I've commanded. They'll be baptized. And baptism, as we've talked about here many times, is a picture, it's an outward picture of an inward heart. The apostle Paul, when he talks about a person coming to faith in Jesus, he uses, he really uses creation language. He uses Genesis 1 and 2 language where he says the old is gone and the new has come. A new person is being created. The way that we understand this sort of theologically or even experientially is that the Spirit of God comes into a person and there's really helpful language in the book of Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 36, where he says, I take out of you your heart of stone, heart that doesn't love Jesus, doesn't love his law, doesn't love his ways, and I replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a tender heart, a heart that delights in obeying my law. And so what we have is this, this new creation language where God is making a person new. In other words, you're a new person. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're a new person. When you get baptized, what you're publicly declaring is, I'm a new person. I'm, I'm declaring outwardly what God has done inwardly in my heart. And so now you are being restored back to the image you were made, back into the image of God who made you. Let us make man in our own image and likeness. So you are baptized in the name of the God who is remaking you back into his image and likeness. He's restoring all broken things. So you get baptized in the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the Holy Spirit. And you see this diagram, or this graphic that we talk about here often, that you now have a new identity. 
You're no longer defined by your sin. You're no longer defined by your brokenness. You're no longer defined by your mistakes. You're no longer defined by what the culture speaks over you. You're no longer defined by some false story over your life. You're not who you think you are. You are now being made new into the image and likeness of God. And so you see, we, are, we talk about this all the time at West Village, but we, we say we're a family of missionary servants. We're a family because we've been baptized in the name of the Father, we're missionaries because we've been baptized into the name of the Son, and we're servants because we've been baptized into the name, or sorry, into the, we're missionaries because we've been baptized in the name of the Spirit, and we're servants because we've been baptized into the name of the Son. That these things now define for us who we are. We are a family. You've been adopted into the family of God. It's a beautiful picture. Now I want you to think about this with me for a second. Think about the implications for how we then are to view our lives, how we are to view what it means to be a part of the church. I mean, just think about this for a second. You're, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus... Spirit of God's come into you. He's given you a new heart. You're a new creation. Not perfect creation. New creation. That means we are brothers and sisters. We're family. So, so the church isn't, it's not a Sunday event. We're a family. It's not a building that you go to. It's a family. Well, we, we get a little weird about this sometimes. Right around the office, we, have, we, we call it a West Village swear jar. And so if anyone says, uh, hey, I'm going to church, we say, oh, you got to put $5 in the swear jar. Because we don't go to church. And some of you are like, oh, that's semantical. It doesn't really matter. We call it the gathering, right? Sounds culty. Where are you going this morning? We're going to the gathering of the church. Oh, weird. Is there going to be like virgin chicken's blood? Like what's, you know, I don't, hopefully not. But Jesus also says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You speak what you believe. And the reality is, I, I think, I, I, I mean, I've been doing this for a while. So I think I have a pretty good sense of the pulse of the uh, the way that people view the church, they don't view it like a family. They view it like an event they attend. Not a people that they belong to. Like, you've heard of this term before, church shopping? Like, what does that mean? Well, I have a list, and there's a bunch of things that I'm looking for, and if this church checks off the right amount of boxes then I might be so inclined to come here if it meets my needs. Imagine family shopping. Some of you are like, that's a great idea. Imagine spouse shopping and all the ladies, you know, shh, subdue yourself. Can I suggest... That might be demonic. It, it might be demonic 
to view the church like a product that we consume rather than a family that we belong to. Because you're not going to get that idea thumbing your finger through the pages of the Bible and the New Testament. You're going to get the picture of uh, the idea of a picture of a group of people who are radically reorienting their lives around one another, who are selling property and possessions and giving to anyone, who in need, uh, anyone who's in need, who are meeting together daily, devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and the breaking of bread and prayer. And they're radically for one another. It's not like a gym membership. Right? We're like, do we feel like going this morning? Nobody ever feels like going to the gym, right? Do we feel like participating? Do we feel like, do we feel like it? And you come in and you have these sort of shallow relationships, right? Like, I mean, I go to the gym, obviously, and um, <laughs> kidding. And I see the same people every week and, you know, we all just kind of nod, hey, morning, morning, and, but we're just there to do our thing. But some of, for some of us, that's the church. Shallow, we come in, we nod, we smile, and we're here so long as this works for us. But the second it gets too difficult, we're out. Could I suggest to us that this may be an area of repentance for us? This may be an area where we need to go like, I need to check my heart here. Am I actually in? Is this actually my family? Just in the last couple of weeks, I, I, and, and listen, I think West Village, I love this church. I love this church family. And this is family for us. Like whenever I throw a party or whenever we're doing something and we're like, who are we going to invite? It's like, I want to invite all these people. Because like, well, we can't invite them all because we have a really small house. But it's like, I just, I want to be here. I want to be with you. I love this thing. I love it. I love it. I love it. Like I bleed for this. I hope you do as well. But just this week, I heard a couple of stories where there were people who had like pretty significant needs. Like there was one group, uh, one of our community groups where one of, the, one of the people in the group just kind of went MIA. Started ghosting everybody off the radar. Wasn't around. And, uh, and one of the people in the group were like, well, what would we do if this was our brother or sister? We'd go find them. And they literally like borderline broke into their house. I'm not sure I'm endorsing that, but that's what they did. Came in. We love you. We care about you. How can we help you? It's family. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of the church. It's a beautiful picture of a God who's rescued and redeemed and restored us, whereby we no longer just kind of show up here, smile, eat our muffins, drink our coffee, enjoy some music and some subpar preaching, and then go home. But we're actually deeply committed to one another. It's more than just a couple of hours. It's actually a radical reorientation of our lives. And I'm going to get to this towards the end, but can I just suggest to you that that might actually be the thing that could win over our city and win over our culture? Because I'll tell you what's not going to do it. Cool movie theater churches. Great bands. Funny pastors. Great kids programs. Do you know why? Because nobody cares. Your neighbors don't care and my neighbors don't care. But a community of people who are radically for one another, radically reorienting their lives around one another, that is so countercultural. And I would suggest to us that that's what we see as the new apologetic for the gospel throughout the New Testament. It's the community of people giving their lives to Jesus and pouring their lives out for one another because of what Jesus has done for them. And so here's the invitation this morning. If you're on the fringes, if this is the gym that you go to, 
you might be missing out. I know God's will for your life. It's to be a part of the family of God. To be deeply known, deeply loved, and deeply connected to a group of people who are pretty unimpressive, to be honest, and are going to fail you and disappoint you and frustrate you. But together, pulling in the same direction, we're going to figure out what it means to love, serve, and follow Jesus. So that's the family of God. That's the language that Jesus is using to describe the church. But I want to jump back into some of the specifics of this text and ask some more questions. So if that's the family of God, I want want to ask another question that I think is important to ask of this text, and that is, what is Jesus not saying here? Uh, Because I think we could read a text like this and uh, grossly uh, misunderstand it. (laughs) When I read it to the teens, they were like, sweet, I don't like my family. And two of the teens were my kids. So... That was awkward. And I said, well, that's not what Jesus is saying. See, what Jesus is not saying here is that we are to denounce our biological family. Jesus is not denouncing his biological family. And we know this if we start to just work our way through the New Testament. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus specifically rebukes the Pharisees and religious leaders for not honoring their families, not honoring their parents. We see this at the end of the life and ministry of Jesus where he's hanging on the cross. And, and one of the things that he does just as he's about to go to his death is he actually uh, commissions Peter to take care of his mother. Why? Because he cares about his family. So what Jesus is not saying here is you are to denounce your biological family. So what then, third question, what is Jesus saying here? While he isn't calling us to denounce our earthly families, he is demonstrating for us the important place that the family of God is to play in our lives. If you have your Bibles, just go one page or maybe two pages to the right, Matthew chapter 10, and look at what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 10, picking up in verse 37. These are verses we've looked at before, but he says, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. When I read that at the retreat, my son was like, sweet. And then I read the next part of the verse. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I said, sweet back. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus saying here? Again, we know he's not, we know what he's not saying. We know he's not saying that you are to denounce your biological or your earthly families. That's not the call of Jesus. That's not the call of him on our lives. But what Jesus is doing here, which he does often, is he's using hyperbole to make a bigger point. Uh, What Jesus is saying here is that your pursuit of me, your pursuit of the church, your pursuit of, and not the church, like I just want you to hear something for a second. When I say the church, I don't mean, uh, this isn't like some call for you to like, uh, you know, start serving or start giving or start working down in West Village Kids or get in a community group. I'm talking about theologically the church, the mission of the church to bring the glory of God to bear on our city. And so what Jesus is saying is your pursuit of me, which will lead to a love for my church and the mission of the church needs to be in in a place of prominence in your life in such a way that all other things in your life, they look like hate. So while he's not calling us to denounce our families or love our parents less or love our spouses or our kids less, what he's doing is the exact opposite of that. He's saying, I want you to love me more. 
He's asking you to hold up your love for your family and compare it to how much you love him and say, do you actually love me? And an easy litmus test for this. This is easy. It's easy. It's super convicting, but it's super easy to tell. Is how much do you sacrifice for her, the church? How much do we sacrifice for the mission? How much of our time, how much of our money, how much of our lives? And again, here, you're just trying to get us more. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about West Village. I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about the mission of Jesus to make disciples, to fill the city of Victoria with the glory of God. How much of our lives is poured out for that versus how much of our lives is just poured out for us? That's the easy way to tell. That's what Jesus is getting after here. And I think in a a unique way, in this particular cultural moment, Jesus is confronting something that strikes right to the heart. I think there are those inside the church, speaking to Christians here, not non-Christians, because... We wouldn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. There are those inside the church who have made their sole priority their earthly families at the expense of the family of God. In other words, your time, your money, your effort, your energy, they don't orbit around the church. They orbit around your biological family. And again, I'm not trying to guilt or shame, but there's an easy way to tell. There's an easy way to tell which is the priority. And here's the kicker. In this culture, both the culture that we live in in terms of the North American or Western culture and the culture of the church, it's easy to do this, to worship family above Jesus and actually look good doing it. In fact, I I would contend that there's an idolatry in the church right now where we, I mean, this church is all about the family. We're all about loving families. It's right on the website. We got something for the whole family. Like, shouldn't the church be all about Jesus? Now, I want to be clear about what I'm not saying. Remember, Jesus is not saying we are to denounce our biological families. So is it wrong to coach our kids sports? I hope not, because I coach like 17 basketball teams. Is it wrong to go on dates with our wives? I hope not, because I love to go on dates with my wife. Is it wrong to take vacation? I hope not, because I love to take vacation with my family. But what Jesus is saying is it's wrong to worship your family. It's wrong to worship your family above the family of God, above the mission of Jesus, above Jesus himself. I mean, look at verse 39. And listen, I know there's a rub here. There is a rub to what Jesus is saying. And and there should be, right? Remember the context. Remember 11 and 12. Matthew chapter 11 and 12. Jesus comes, all these groups of people, and he's preaching stuff like this, stuff that's hard to swallow. And what do they do? They reject him. They're like, no, I don't want any of that. 
I don't want any of your ways. I don't want any of your teachings. I don't want to submit to that. That's not good. I don't want to uh, get away. And, he, and again, he, he's having the same conversation right now with us. Like, what are, are we the disciples or are we the crowds? I don't know. I mean, you have to decide. You have to wrestle with this. But that's what's happening here. So there's going to be a rub. But look at what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. There's this countercultural nature to what it means to follow Jesus where he's saying, he's not saying love your family less. He's saying love me more. And here, here's, just to give you a picture, what he's saying is take your family and place them at my feet. Place them at the altar. Let go of them. Stop holding on to them so tightly. And when you do this, you'll actually find your life. When Jesus is the priority, you can actually love your family without needing to get something from them. You can just enjoy them as the gifts of God that they are. Believe me, I love my kids deeply. I love my wife deeply. But I love Jesus more. It seems counterintuitive to us. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. Now, listen, I don't want to tell any of us, because I do want to talk just for a second about parenting, and I don't want to be accused of telling anyone how to parent their kids. I have opinions, probably no surprise there. I just want to tell you about what this looks like in our house. In, in our house, and we have a long way to go, and our kids are very far from perfect, if you know them. They're lovely kids, but they're not perfect kids. But in our house, we have what we call habits or rhythms of grace. And these are things that we just put in place, routines, rhythms that we put in place so that our family knows what is the most important thing. Because you can say Jesus is the most important thing. But out of the overflow of the heart, the life lives, the mouth speaks, the family rhythms live, and your kids are not going to believe what you say. They're going to believe what you do as a family. They're going to believe what you prioritize. They're going to believe what you talk about at the dinner table. They're going to believe those things. So what is the priority in your home? So for, for us, we, we redeem the dinner time, which means we, we make a priority to as many days a week as possible, and it's hard with four kids that are getting older and in high school and playing multiple sports on multiple nights, but we just carve out at least 30 minutes of what we call FaceTime where we're sitting at the dinner table and we're eating a meal, looking at each other, talking about our day, and, and by God's grace, we, we try and slip a little bit of Jesus talk. My kids call it getting pastored. I don't know if that's what your kids call it, but, oh, you just got pastored by dad. But, but that's one of the things we do. So we, we just try and have a meal and we try and talk about Jesus. It's not like Bible study. It's not sermon prep time. It's not me pontificating on the theological truths. It's just, hey, how are you doing? How's your day going? How does Jesus speak into that? Can we pray for you? For us, again, uh, being a part of the church gathering on Sunday, priority. So for us, Sunday morning sports, non-starter. I want to play soccer, non-starter. Soccer is Saturday, Sunday morning, and it's raining, and it's like 4 a.m., and it's like, no, it's dumb. No. But Sunday, it's a priority. Serving. All, all of our kids serve in some way, shape, or form. Uh, once a month, they're on a serve team. It's just part of the rhythms or the habits of grace in our family. Even for us, community group and being on mission in our neighborhood, huge priority. It takes priority over sports. It takes priority over friend groups. 
because we want our kids to know this is what Team Sinusol is all about. We are about Jesus and his mission. And it's also the case for Kelly and I. We reorient our lives around the mission we believe Jesus has called us on. So we say no to a whole bunch of things that we'd really like to do, but we can't do because it would take us off of the mission he's called us to. And we do not do any of these things perfectly by any means. My only hope here is to encourage you to think through what are the habits of grace what are the rhythms of grace in our family? What, not what do we speak, not what are, our, what are our spoken values, but what are our lived out values and how does that influence our family? How are we discipling our family? Because Jesus says the church is to be the most important. The mission of Jesus is to take a place of preeminence and supremacy in our homes, in our families. Fourth question. How is this good news? It doesn't sound like good news, does it? It sounds like bad news. Some of you might be here and you might be new to church, new to following Jesus, and you're thinking, God sounds like a whiny self-centered kid who just wants me to have no fun and do everything for him. Here's why this is good news. Because you aren't all that. And I am not all that. And we are not all that. And we desperately need each other. And we desperately need the family of God. I don't know about you, I, I trend towards self-sufficiency. I trend towards I'm awesome. I trend towards I know all the answers. I trend towards I'm the smartest guy in the room. That tends to be where the heart goes. But despite how hard I look, or try rather to look like I have it all together, the reality is I don't. I'm a hot mess, and anyone who's known me with any degree of proximity, close proximity, knows that that is the case. And so here's the beautiful reality, the good news of what Jesus is saying here that I think is so timely for us. It's that we aren't called to have it all together. We aren't called to have all the answers. We're called to be humble enough to recognize that we need one another. See, the reason we don't lean in, the reason we treat the church more like a gym than we do like a family is because we actually don't see the value in it. It actually gets in the way of what we really want to be doing. Mom and dad, I have good news for you. You are not the only disciplers of your kids. Are you the primary disciplers of your kids? Absolutely. But maybe you just heard what I just shared and you're like, oh, snap, I'm a failure. You have the church. You have this beautiful community of people who want to come around and support you. I don't do the discipleship of my family alone. There are so many people who have invested in my kids. Like just this weekend, I was watching my, my middle son, Jacob, who's just now in high school. So he's just getting a taste of all the youth group stuff. And he's just starting to make connections. And, uh, he, you know, he just, he so fell in love. He has a man crush on one of the 20-something-year-old leader guys. Where's Caleb? What's Caleb doing? Caleb, you want to go play pool? Caleb, 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 Caleb. 
Here's what I did. I pulled Caleb aside and I said, Caleb, my son has said your name probably more times than he said the name of Jesus this weekend. Here's what this means. He looks up to you. You have an opportunity here to invest in him that me and his mom desperately need because we don't have all the answers. There's another young man, I don't think he's here this morning, Ryan Carswell, like regularly hangs out with our oldest son, just takes him out. If he comes on a Sunday, they often go out for lunch together, talk about Jesus, talk about life. So deeply thankful for that. Dave Gray, when, you know, he's on staff here running our youth ministry, invests in my kids, invests, if you have high school students and they're involved in our student ministry, invest, like I'm just desperate for that because I, while I have a lot of answers, I don't have them all and they don't even want to hear them from me some of the time. This past summer, we got to go down to Washington, uh, spend some time with some really good friends of ours, Jeff and Karen Wall. Some of you have met them before. They're part of the Soma family of churches that West Village belongs to. And our oldest had just gotten into dating and me and his mom, Kelly, were freaking out. And we got to their house and it was late and we were sitting on their back porch and we were eating ice cream. And, uh, and Jeff just started discipling my son and asking him questions. And I thought to myself, I'm so thankful for these people who care about my kids because I need them. We need each other. If we're honest, we need one another. And it goes beyond just the family. It comes to us. It goes deeper to just our own souls. We need one another. There's this trend in the last 10 years that within the church, maybe even longer, it's probably been here since the beginning of time, but it's certainly become more pronounced in the last 10 years where the church has become this hyper-individualized experience. I mean, we've talked a little bit about this already, about the, the trappings and failings of consumer culture, uh, but there's this idea that we have bought into in many ways in our culture that we can follow Jesus in isolation. Me, my Bible, my cup of coffee, and Jesus alone in my living room. I listen to some podcasts. I watch some sermons that I like on YouTube, and that's my full expression of church. Maybe I parachute into a thing once in a while because I like the experience, but that's, that's my full expression of church community. Can I suggest to you that's not at all what Jesus would have for us as a people? There is no... There is no picture of that in the New Testament. The idea of you alone with your Bible is not even a picture that's in the New Testament. Now, let me just be clear about what I'm not saying. I think it's really good for you to read your Bible. I wake up many days at 5 a.m. and spend time alone with Jesus, and I would never suggest that you shouldn't do that, but, but that's not a thing that you see in the Bible. They didn't have Bibles that they took home and read with them. They were desperately dependent on one another. They needed one another. They would gather together around the scriptures. They would gather together for food. They would gather together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They would gather together for mission. This is what the church is. I'm trying to imagine, like right now in, in Iran, this is the place where, where Christianity is growing faster than it's growing anywhere else in the world. And it's led primarily by women. And a lot of the people that are coming to faith in Jesus are being killed. I'm trying to imagine an Iranian walking into like a house church, which is probably in a small 10 by 10 hut on a dirt floor, going, man, I sure hope they sing that song about the oceans. Otherwise, I'm out of here. They better have a good kids program for Abdul or I'm out of here. 
No, they probably feared for their life as they walked into the building and were deeply dependent on one another because they had no other choice. I think we're missing something. There's something that happens when we give ourselves to one another. It's beautiful. But we start to realize that we actually need one another. You might not need money or meals or even prayers because life is great. This isn't Iran. But here's why you need each other. Here's why we need each other. Because when we come together, your sin collides with their sin, collides with my sin. And it's just a whole bunch of sinners trying to be together. And it's super ugly. And it's super unimpressive. And it's super messy. And you're sitting there saying to yourself, I'm not even sure if I like these people. They're kind of weird. They're saying the same thing about you. And you have an option in that moment. You can take your family, you can go home, you can say we're just too busy, don't feel like going out tonight, just gonna do my own thing. You can hang out with all your friends who are just like you, who hold all the same political positions and theological positions and have kids the same age and you're all the same ethnicity and you all speak the same language, you all can do your thing together. Or you can recognize what's happening in that moment, which is your brokenness is being put on display. Your lack of grace, your lack of empathy, your lack of love for people who aren't like you, it's just being exposed. And then you have a choice in that moment. You can run, or you can say, oh my gosh, I need Jesus. I need him. I need him to supernaturally transform my heart to love people that I don't know that well and to love people that I don't even really like that much. Where sin abounds, Jesus abounds. His grace abounds, his love abounds, and his mercy abounds. See, the beautiful invitation of Jesus here is an invitation to himself to become more and more like him. This isn't demanding. This is a gift. It's a gift. I'm going to wind down by answering one last question and I'll invite the band to come up. The last question is this. Question five. How do you become a part of this family? Well, if you go back to the text... We know that you can't be born into the family, right? Because we have Jesus' biological family who's there and they're not born into the family. They're not part of the family. Jesus' blood relatives weren't identified as his spiritual family. You can't hitch, this is what I said to our high school students on the weekend, you can't hitch your wagon to the faith of your parents. Your dad can plant a church and that doesn't qualify you to be a part of the family of God. There comes a point where you have to take ownership. See, coming to church, being 
you know, doing religious things, being a religious person, being nice, reading your Bible, all these, none of these things qualify you. What qualifies you? Well, Jesus tells us, look at verse 48, or sorry, verse, verse 50. He says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. Matthew chapter 11, chapter 12, there's all of these people who rejected Jesus. And then here we have a group of people that Jesus points to and says, this is my family. What's the difference? These people were soft-hearted. They were humble. And they responded. And so the question for us is, will we do the same? Will we humble ourselves? Will we recognize our own brokenness and our own need for Jesus? Will we recognize his radical love? That Will we recognize that the thing that binds us together is so much greater than that which divides us? We're not a people who are defined by a particular political party or an ideology or a way of thought on anything. We're a people who are defined by what Jesus has done for us in laying down his life, laying down his body, shedding his blood, dying in our place for our sins, and it is that which binds us together. It's his radical love, his radical grace, and his radical mercy which gets put on display when we're the church. When we're the church. So how will we respond? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your family. Even if we don't know it's a gift, even if we're not aware of our deep need, it is there. We need it. We need you. We need one another. Lord, we invite you right now to speak to us, to beckon us, to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father inviting us to come sit at his table with his children. And that we would not treat your family lightly or with contempt, but we would embrace one another. And when it's hard, we would embrace you and we would stare at you and your love would change us and transform us and give us bigger hearts and bigger love and more of Jesus so that we can love each other well. Help us to be gracious with one another when we fail. Lord, we don't want to be perfect. We want to be real. We want, we want you to be put on display. We want an outside world to look in here and go, what is it that binds these people together? It's not that they're all the same ethnicity. It's not that they're, they're all monolithic. It's Jesus. It's his radical grace and mercy that is changing and transforming them. And that that would be compelling in a culture that is so divided and so broken and so torn, so torn apart. Spirit, do a work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said,